So as many of you probably know, this is the week of Hanukkah. And a lot of Christians don't think Hanukkah really has anything to do with them. They say, oh yeah, that's a Jewish holiday, that's cool, but I'm a Christmas person. Well, it's not one or the other. And it's, it's not like a Jewish thing, even though it is a Jewish thing. But the thing is, if it wasn't for Hanukkah, none of us would be here today. The Jewish people were on the brink of annihilation. This is about 140 or so years before Jesus was born. And had the Jewish people been exterminated, Jesus never would have been born. There would be no salvation, no Christianity. We wouldn't be here today. So the story of Hanukkah is extremely significant to us. Satan, a lot of people think, knows God's plan that he was going to bring the Redeemer through the Jewish people. So he was constantly throughout their history trying to destroy them. Passover, the Exodus, Purim, Esther, Haman, Hanukkah would be the next in line. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Hanukkah and then some of the biblical tie-ins to the holiday. But first, tonight will be the second night of Hanukkah. And in Jewish homes, in many Christian homes, believe it or not, people are going to light Hanukkah candles. One of the things I think of is Jesus being the light of the world, telling us to be lights also. So when I light this, it has many meanings. And there's some prayers that are said. Here's one of them. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kiddushanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu l'chad l'kner shel olam. Now the prayer I just said means, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to kindle the lights of the world, the light of the world. The typical prayer is to kindle the lights of Hanukkah, but God never commanded anybody to kindle the lights of Hanukkah, so I can't say that prayer. So I say to kindle the light of the world because God told us that we are to be lights in this world and to let our light shine in such a way that people will see our good, look, uh, our good looks, <laughs> our good works. And glorify our Father who is in heaven. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> so, let me tell you briefly the story of Hanukkah. Like I said, it was about 160 years-ish before Jesus was born. Alexander the Great had already come in and conquered the whole region. Something amazing happened in Israel, though. As he came in to conquer Israel, the high priest was given a vision by God because he was scared to death because Alexander was going to come kill them all because he wouldn't support his campaign against Persia because the Persians, we had, the Israel had a commitment to. And the high priest is a man of his word, and he wasn't going to break his commitment to the Persians, even though Alexander threatened to kill everybody. So he prayed. He called everybody to pray. And that night he had a vision. And God said, don't worry about, about this. I want you to dress up in your priestly garments and have everybody else dress up in white. And when Alexander comes, I want you to throw open the gates to Jerusalem and go out and meet him. Don't worry, I got you. This is it's all going to work out fine. So he gets up from his dream. He tells everybody about his vision, and everybody's excited. They do exactly what he said. Throw open the gates of Jerusalem, and they go out to meet Alexander. Well, Alexander did something so bizarre that his generals thought he had gone insane. He approached the Jewish high priest and he did something that made it look like he was reverencing him. So let's just say, for convenience sake, he approached the Jewish high priest alone, off his horse, and bowed down to him. 
Now this is Alexander the Great, one of history's foremost conquerors. He doesn't bow down to nobody. Everybody bows down to him. So his generals are like, what are you doing? Doing homage to the Jewish priests. They should be doing homage to you. What's going on? He said, I'm not doing homage to the priest. I'm doing homage to the name. On his breastplate in Hebrew was the name of God. So how does he know anything about the name of God? He doesn't speak Hebrew. Alexander said, listen, as I was considering making my plans to go to war with Persia, wondering whether I could conquest, conquer or not, I had a vision. And in the vision, this God came to me, and he said, go, and don't wait, go now, and I will give you victory over the entire Persian Empire. And in my vision, I saw this name and this man dressed in these clothes and all these people in white, just like I see them now. So God was working both ends. So Alexander said, tell me what you want, and I'll do it. And the high priest said, well, for starters, we don't want to worship your God. Don't force your Hellenism on us like you have on every other empire. Alexander said, done. And our people who are scattered in other countries, let them live by our laws too. Done. Anything else? Alexander was just like, you tell me what you want and you got it. So he conquers the then known world and there's one country that's not forced to follow the Greek gods and that's the country of Israel. Now some people say, Steve, that sounds like a fable. Well, it does if you don't believe the Bible. But if you believe the Bible, that sounds like the kind of stuff that's written in it all the time. Besides, Come up with an alternative explanation as to why Alexander left Israel alone. Nobody's got one. That's the only story out there. So this is, and this was not written in the Bible. This was written by Josephus, a secular historian. Secular, religious, he was Jewish, Roman, little both. So Alexander comes around 300 B.C. Uh, he doesn't live very long. He dies very young. And four generals end up taking over his empire. General to the north... Uh, Seleucus, the north of Israel, and the general to the south of uh, Israel is Ptolemy. Now, these guys kind of got Israel in the middle. The guy in the south had it at first, and he said, you know what, we'll just maintain Alexander's policies. You guys can follow your own laws, your own religions, just, you know, pay your taxes, and we'll leave you alone. But the guy in the north, he was kind of like, you know, Hellenism's good for us, Hellenism's good for you. And so there's kind of some back-and-forth pressure. But over a, a few years... The guy in the north, his name, descendant of Seleucid, his name was Antiochus. And he came down to fight the Ptolemies in Egypt. But by this time, Rome had stepped in. And now Rome is starting to scare everybody. They hadn't taken over the area yet, but they kind of moved in, sent some ambassadors to Egypt, and said, listen, Egyptians are our friends. You mess with them, you mess with us, go home. And Antiochus was like, not going to mess with Rome, because you know Rome. Rome was just starting to take over the world, and they didn't want to mess with Rome. So Antiochus, on his way home, said, well, at least I can kick Israel's butt. And he did. And he started bringing in idolatry, and he set up an idol to Zeus in the holy place in the temple and sacrificed a pig to the idol of Zeus in the temple. And by the way, this idol had the face of Antiochus. And they, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the manifest God. So basically he was saying, you Jews have to worship me as your God, Zeus, and sacrifice a pig or I'll kill you. And he killed lots of them because a lot of them wouldn't do it. Some would. Some people would rather follow a false God 
and live than not. So there was this family of, of religious Jews who fled to the hills, and they said, you know what? God promised us this stuff wouldn't happen to us. We'd always be safe from our enemies if we followed him. The fact that our very temple has been taken over means we need to examine ourselves, people. See, what had happened is even though Alexander didn't force Greek culture on these people and Hellenism, it oozed itself in. And the people started doing all the Greek stuff and worshiping the Greek idols anyway. And then there was a, um, a schism in the high priesthood and they started fighting over who'd be high priest. And they started going to the Syrians, the Seleucids, and say, hey, we'll give you 25 pounds of gold every year if you'll make me the high priest. No, I'll give you 30. And it just became, you know, almost like American politics. <laughs> so God said, hey, you want to worship pagan gods and walk away from me? Go for it. Here you go. This is what they're like. So these religious Jews said, we need to repent. And they led the nation in repentance, and they decided to fight the Syrians, Seleucids, Greeks. They're all one culture. And some of the people said, whoa, 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 we can't take on the Seleucids. They may not be the Romans, but they're a lot tougher than we are. They're trained soldiers, they're more powerful, and there's more of them. And these guys who became known as the Maccabees, and one of them was Judah Maccabee, he said, listen, do you believe in God or don't you? We have a covenant. And he said, if we walk with him, he'll protect us. Do you remember what he did in Egypt? Do you remember what he did with Joshua? Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? It doesn't matter if we have few or many. If God is on our side, let's fight. And they were all, yeah, let's fight. So a handful of those guys went after the Syrians, and sure enough, they routed them, kicked them out of the country, got the temple back. Now, in the temple is this candelabra called a menorah in Hebrew. And it's always supposed to be lit and it shines light in the holy place and the holy of holies. Well, of course, when the pagans took over, the lamps went out. Nobody used it anymore. So they got in, and they cleansed the temple best they could, and they rekindled the lamps. There's a legend that says they only had enough oil for lasting one day because it took about a week to make more holy oil, but somehow it stayed lit, not for one day, not for two, not for three, but eight days and eight nights. It's a legend. I don't know if that happened or not. I do know this, though, and most Jewish people don't know this. So you're going to know more than most Jewish people in just a minute. And then you can go tell them what you learned at church and blow their minds. There's a festival called the Festival of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And it's observed in the fall, and it lasts eight days and eight nights. And it was called the Festival of Lights. And during the Festival of Sukkot, they would light candelabras all over Jerusalem and make it sparkle like a, like a diamond in the sky. And they had all these games and competitions. Who could climb the biggest menorah the fastest, pour in the oil and light the lamps? It was the Festival of Lights. Well, I don't know about the legend, but I do know we couldn't observe the Festival of Lights in the fall because our temple was still in pagan hands. So as soon as the temple came back, they celebrated a late Sukkot, an eight-day holiday called the Festival of Lights. That's where this really comes from. However... Anytime you count the candles of a Hanukkah menorah, or you'll go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. If it has nine, it's for Hanukkah. If it has seven, it looks traditional and it represents the original. But Steve, you said it was an eight night thing. Why do you've got nine candles? On every Hanukkah menorah, there's one extra candle. It's called the servant light and it lights the other candles. Why, Steve? I don't know. I don't know. But you know, it reminds me of Jesus being the light of the world. 
We'll call him the servant light, and he sets us on fire and makes us little lights for the world. I like the symbolism, even though I don't know the original reason behind it. So really, in a sense, we've got a nine-branched menorah that stands for an eight-day holiday, which represents a seven-branched menorah. Nine equals eight equals seven. That's some good math for you. Now, the original candelabra in the temple, in the tabernacle also, was a seven-branch menorah. It's described in detail in the Bible, but there had never been any pictures of it. Everybody always wondered what it looked like. Exodus 25:37 specifically says it was seven branches. Listen. Make seven lamps for the lampstand and set them up so that they shine toward the front. How many lamps? Seven. So even though we didn't know exactly what it looked like, we had some detailed descriptions and everybody knew it was seven lamps. Then something was discovered. Let me uh, ask for the first picture. This is the Arch of Titus. It's in Rome. Jerusalem was attacked by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. He's the one that destroyed the temple and ruined Jerusalem and put it into enemy hands until just a few years ago. Okay, Titus. He later became an emperor of Rome. His brother, whose name was Domitian, had this arch built to honor what Titus did. Now, Titus took all the plunder from Jerusalem back to Rome, and they built this huge Colosseum with it, with the money. You've ever heard of the Roman Colosseum? It still stands today. That was built from the money from the plunder of the temple in Jerusalem. So one of the archaeological wonders of the world today that people flock from all over the world to see was built because of the Jewish people's sin and the oppression of the Gentiles destroying the temple and bringing the plunder off. This triumphal arch of Titus, on the inside, next slide, there's a panel. You see where the arrow's pointing to? Now, let's get a close-up of that panel. This is depicting the carrying away of the menorah from the temple to Rome. It sits there for all the world to see to this very day. And you'll notice the menorah, standard shape that you see nowadays. Now they know kind of what it looked like, in part based on this depiction. And yes, it has seven branches. Well, I told you that the Hanukkah menorah, which is also called the Hanukkah, stands for the original menorah that was supposed to burn all the time, but it got extinguished. But the original menorah, what does that stand for? Why did God tell Moses to put a seven-branch candelabra in the holy place? What's the point? Was it just because they didn't have electricity and they needed light? And why seven branches? Why not six? Why not eight? And it was detailed to the nth degree. Why? In Zechariah chapter 4, we have the understanding of what the menorah represents. You don't see it in the Torah. You don't see it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. God says, build it to look like this. But what's it represent? Zechariah tells us what it represents. Listen. Zechariah has a vision. And the vision, he says, what does this mean? The angel asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold menorah and seven lights on it with seven channels to the, to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and the other on its left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? What does this mean? Okay, 
The angel says, what do you see? And he says, well, in my vision, I see this gold menorah with two olive trees piping oil directly into the menorah. That thing's never going to run out of light. It's tied straight to the tree. Then he said to the angel, what's it mean? And the angel said, don't you know? He says, no, I don't know what it means. You tell me. So here's what the angel says. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel was the governor at this time. He was the Jewish leader who brought the people back from the captivity. Him and his partner, Yeshua, Joshua, in Greek, Jesus, was the high priest. So you had Jesus, the high priest, Joshua, and Zerubbabel. They led this group of people at this time. Okay? Zechariah has a vision, and he sees this menorah and these two trees. He says, what's it stand for, God? Well, one tree stands for Joshua, the other one stands for Zerubbabel. What about the menorah? What's that mean? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. The menorah represents God's spirit. So finally, after all these years of having this menorah in the temple, we finally have an idea of why God put it there. You may know this, I don't know, but everything that God built in the temple... The, tabernacle replaced, the temple replaced the tabernacle, so I use them interchangeably. Everything in the temple was built based on a pattern of what God gave Moses based on what's in heaven. So the temple pictures heaven. Listen to what Hebrews 8.5 says. The work they do as priests is really only a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. It's the same as it was with Moses. When he was about to build the sacred tent, God told him, be sure to make everything according to the pattern you were shown in the mount. So everything in the tabernacle pictured heaven. And Moses had to do it exactly so he didn't ruin the symbolism. Make sure it's a seven-branch menorah and the light never goes out. It stands for something. But what? We didn't know until Zechariah tells us it's the Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle John, he has a vision. And his vision is actually not of a menorah, it's of heaven itself. Listen to him explain his vision. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Or as some translations say, the sevenfold spirit of God. So Zechariah sees a menorah, a golden menorah, and God tells him it represents the spirit. John sees heaven itself. And before the throne of God, just like before the Ark of the Covenant was the menorah in the temple, before the throne of God are seven blazing lamps. Well, if he's seeing heaven, does that mean God's spirit looks like seven blazing lamps? No, yes, no. He's looking at heaven. How do you explain heaven to people? Can you imagine? Next week I'm going to show you a cool video clip and the idea has to do with perspective of heaven. How do you explain something to somebody that's totally beyond their experience? Totally beyond their experience. You wouldn't even know what words to use. So Steve, here in Papua New Guinea, we have a, a fruit. It's called a frizzajit. A what? It's a frizzajit. So you got any idea what it looks like? No. Any idea what it tastes like? No. Okay, a frizzajit, it kind of looks like a pineapple. But instead of those leaves on the top of the pineapple, it's got hair, like on a head. 
But it's got the same shape of a pineapple, but instead of all those little squares on, on the shape, it's got circles. And it's the exact same color. Now, how many of you got an idea of what a frizzajit is? Some of you are saying, yeah, Steve, shut up. <laughs> you, if it's totally beyond your experience, what are you going to do? How are you going to explain it? If you're a two-dimensional creature, how do you understand the third dimension? If you're a three-dimensional creature, how do you understand the sixth dimension? So John's just doing the best he can to explain things that are really unexplainable using symbolism that we underknow. We underknow. Where did that come from? Oh, that we know and understand. <laughs> that we underknow. New word for the day. Twitter, underknow. <laughs> using concepts and words that we understand and know. In the book of Revelation, it's symbolic. So the menorah stands for something in heaven, and what John sees, the seven lamps, stand for the Holy Spirit too. He can't really explain what the Holy Spirit looks like, so it's the menorah picture. The lamps represent the Spirit of God. So why seven? Why not three? Why not eight? Why not nine? Seven is used throughout Scripture to show the concept of completeness, wholeness, can't get any better than. Seven is it on a stick. Seven's it. You don't get any better than seven. It, obviously, it started with the days of the week. A full week is seven days. Five days, that's not a week. Four days, that's not a week. Eight days, that's not a week. Seven days, a full week. Remember, God created the week. He could have made it as long as he wanted. He chose seven. All right? Seven is used throughout Scripture to depict the Holy Spirit, to depict Jesus, to depict fullness. Let me give you an ex another example from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. So John has a vision. In heaven, he sees this throne covered with thunder and lightning. It's all powerful. And before it are seven lamps burning. And then I see this lamb, as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. Now this lamb, as if it had been slain, is obviously Jesus. As you go on to read it, it's unmistakable. You can't argue with it. So Jesus isn't a lamb, literally. No, he's seeing symbolism. Jesus isn't a lamb, literally. The seven lamps aren't seven lamps, literally. It's symbolism. And then he says, and this lamb, as if it had been slain, had seven horns and seven eyes. Well, horns throughout Scripture talk about power and authority and might. That's why they often depict kingdoms. So why does Jesus have seven horns in this vision? Well, because Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Seven is fullness, it's completeness. He, he can't be more king than Jesus is king. Seven represents that. He's got seven horns. Why has he got seven eyes? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't have more spirit than Jesus has. He is the Lord. He's got the Holy Spirit. So he's got seven horns and seven eyes, which it says are the seven spirits of God. Does God have seven spirits? No, it's symbolism. All right? To fullness, it's completeness. Seven horns, ultimate strength and power. Seven eyes, omniscience, omnipresence, basically the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. One of the commentaries I looked at said this. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, and with the seven eyes of Jehovah... They are the sevenfold radiation of the Spirit of Jehovah. All right. The Bible's got some stuff in it that's pretty straightforward. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I understand that. Moses, go up to the mountain. I'm going to give you some commandments. I'll write them down on stone, take them back to the people. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. I understand that. Some of the Bible has, you know, legal codes and health codes. Some of it's poetry. Some of it's metaphor and parable. And some of it's vision. Vision's kind of bizarre. But it's making sense, a lot of it, if you just be patient with it and pull all the pieces together. So here's what we've seen. We know there was a menorah in the old temple. God told Moses to make it and that it was patterned after heaven. So he makes a seven-branch menorah, but we didn't know what it represented until Zechariah. And Zechariah said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So we know that this menorah represents God's Holy Spirit. John gave us a vision of heaven right before the throne, just like the menorah was before the Ark of the Covenant. We've got seven lamps burning, which represents the fullness, again, of God's Holy Spirit. Then we see Jesus in heaven with seven horns, full, full authority, a lamb as if he'd been slain, he was crucified for us, and seven eyes, because, of course, he's with the Holy Spirit. Making sense so far? Are you tracking? Because we've got a little more to go, but it takes the same concepts and puts them elsewhere. So, we see seven lamps blazing in Zechariah. We see seven lamps in Hanukkah, at the original menorah. We see seven lamps in heaven. But with the seven lamps in heaven is a lamb as if he'd been slain with seven eyes. In Zechariah, which shows us the seven lamps, we also get seven eyes in the immediate context. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 says, Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, you who are men symbolic of things to come. Ah, you're a symbol. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stones I have set in front of Joshua, the stone? There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. Whew. Okay. Zacharias gets, gets this vision. Listen, O high priest Joshua. Okay, the word of the Lord is coming to Joshua. Another word for Joshua, Jesus. That's significant because it says, you men are symbols of things to come. What's the priest's name? Jesus, who is a symbol of something to come. And then I see a stone with seven eyes on it and a branch who is my servant. Well, what's with the stone and the seven eyes and what's with the branch? Well, you got a clue about the seven eyes, but not yet the stone and you don't have a clue about the branch. So let's take a look. Let's understand this additional vision. Jeremiah 23 talks about a branch. Listen. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. David will have a descendant called the righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. And this is the name which he is called, the Lord our righteousness. So Jeremiah says King David's going to have a descendant, a descendant who's going to be called the branch, who's also going to be called the Lord our righteousness, who's going to save Israel, rule them in peace and safety. The commentators all agree that's a prophecy about the Messiah. 
okay? My servant, the branch, is the Messiah. And there's an additional play on words because the word for branch is, in some places in Scripture anyways, netzer, which sounds like the word from which we get Nazarene, from the word Nazareth. There's kind of like this play on words there. But for now, what we have in the text is the branch is coming, and he's the Messiah. So, Zechariah has a vision. He says Joshua and his companions are symbols of things to come. One of them happens to be named Jesus. And he has a vision about a branch. He mentions a branch anyway. And then he mentions a stone with seven eyes. Okay, the branch represents the, the righteous king who's coming, Jesus the Messiah. And then the stone with seven eyes. You already know the seven eyes represent the Holy Spirit because we saw him in heaven already. But I want you to turn with me to Psalm 118. Yeah, sometimes to understand this, you've got to go all over the Bible and fit, the piece, fit all the pieces together. Psalm 118. Go ahead and turn there with me. Now, if you're new to the Bible, there's one in front of you. Just take your Bible, crack it open right in the middle, and that'll put you real close to the Psalms. I got into the Proverbs, which is right past the Psalms. Go to Psalm 118. And we're going to understand what the stone is with the seven eyes. Psalm 118. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 27. Psalm 118, 21 through 27. I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. So the psalmist is praying to God. And he says, I will give thanks because you've answered my prayer and you have saved me. No, you have become my salvation. In Hebrew, you have become my Jesus. It's a play on words. The word salvation and Jesus are the same word. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is our God. He has made his light shine upon us. With boughs in his hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Another translation says, bind the festival sacrifice to the horns of the altar. All right, Zechariah is talking about a stone with seven eyes. In Psalm 118, we see a stone that the builders rejected, who's become the chief cornerstone. And right before that verse, it says, you have become my Jesus. You have become my salvation. Now listen to what the Apostle Peter says. He had just presided over the healing of a man, and everybody was amazed and wanted to know how Peter could heal anybody. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Did you know the name Jesus means Jehovah saves? God saves. That's what Jesus means. 
So when it says, you have become my salvation, it's Jesus' name wrapped right up into that word. Why did Jesus come? To save people. To die for our sins and redeem us so we could go to heaven. Jesus is all about salvation. That's his mission and his ministry and his purpose. To save human beings. So Peter just out and out said it. He's healed in the name of Jesus, the stone you builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone or the capstone. Jesus is all about salvation. I thought it was cool that the word Nazareth was put in there. Even festival branches was thrown in there, a little more subtle hints. He was, the word salvation was thrown in there. And it ties exactly to Zechariah that says, the branch, the stone, of course with the seven eyes, the Holy Spirit. So, the branch represents the Messiah. The stone with the seven eyes, just like the lamb with the seven eyes, represents Jesus Christ with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He says, Joshua, Jesus, you men are a symbol of things to come. My branch is coming, my stone is coming. And then he makes this statement. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So hundreds of years before Jesus came, Zechariah prophesied that the branch would come, the stone would come, and God would remove all the sin of the land in a single day. How does that happen? Obviously, through the crucifixion of Jesus, the stone, the lamb that was slain, according to Revelation. The main thing about Jesus is he died for our sins. He's the Savior. And so Zechariah says, I will remove the sin of this land in a day through the branch of the stone. That's the implication. Well, I thought it was neat how in Zechariah, in one chapter, we saw the seven lamps, and then we jumped up to heaven and saw the seven lamps, but with them, a lamb with seven eyes. But in Zechariah, we saw the stone with seven eyes. Are there any more parallels? Yes, there are. Listen to where Zechariah goes in chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will look upon... So, Zechariah says, God is speaking. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. How can God say he's been pierced? God's a spirit. God can't be pierced unless he takes on human form. And we call that the son of God, Right? And that's why it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten child. It's all laid out. The whole gospel, even the Trinity is laid out in the prophets. And then in the next chapter, Zechariah really brings it home. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. How? Through the pierced one. He died for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So what we did this morning is we took some of the most complex passages of scripture and we looked at various other scriptures and brought them together into what I think is an understandable, cohesive whole. God told Moses right next to the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God, to put a menorah. Make sure it never goes out and it has seven branches. Why? Moses wasn't told. Nobody knew 
up until Zechariah. And then God says, hey, it's the Holy Spirit. Ah, that's why he can be right next to the Ark of the Covenant. That's why his light's never supposed to go out. Seven is fullness. I get it. And then John transports us to heaven and verifies the very thing. It says it's the spirits of God. But yet there's this lamb there with seven eyes. Well, Zechariah's got a stone with seven eyes. The lamb is the lamb of God. The stone is the stone the builders rejected. It stands for Jesus. I get it. And then Zechariah says, yeah, but when this branch comes, when this stone comes, he's going to be pierced. And it's going to be a grievous thing but it'll open a fountain in Jerusalem for the cleansing of sin. And I will heal the land in a day. It all makes sense. All these crazy passages of scripture. And once a year, we light a menorah. So I'm hoping, even if you don't have Jewish heritage, you might want to pick yourself up a menorah. And you know what? You could do it the Jewish way and light one candle one day, one candle the next day, one candle. You can do seven candles a day. That's cool, too, just so it's all there. And remember that God has got your destiny in the palm of his hand. He laid it all out in prophecy so that we could look back and just be amazed at him, because I certainly am. The Holy Spirit is significant. There's no salvation without the Holy Spirit. You can't take a piece of God. It's God together that saves us. And the Holy Spirit was active in salvation. Listen to what Hebrews 9.14 says. Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to God. In that one passage of scripture, we've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son made the sacrifice. The sacrifice was made to God, and it was presented through the Holy Spirit. It is my hope and my prayer that for those of you who have never had any interest or understanding of Hanukkah, that now that you do. And what I've shared with you this morning goes way beyond what Jewish people understand. All they know is about is the Maccabees and, and the miracle of the oil. And so now you have an opportunity to share more of the Bible with some of your Jewish friends as well and to grow richer and deeper in your faith as we honor God for what he's done. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for presenting all this stuff out in symbol so that we could understand it later in your program. I don't begin to, to think that we have really a clue, but we look forward to you unveiling even more before our eyes and shining the light of the menorah on our souls. Help us to see your plan. Help us to appreciate your plan. And for those who don't know Jesus, who have not made a commitment to follow you, Lord, I pray you would enlighten their souls as well, that they would see the truth that they would hunger for righteousness and for salvation and for a relationship with you. That you would make them aware of their sinfulness and desire to come to you for forgiveness. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.